Father, again, we just come to you today and we're excited about uh, this vision that you've given us in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of what heaven looked like when you lifted John up and brought him into the very midst of your throne room. And Lord, uh, we've seen some really fascinating sights, but Lord, I think we see the most important picture, the most uh, important symbolism in the entire book of Revelation today as we look at uh, the beginning of chapter number 5 and we see the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Lord. And, and all of our hope, all of our uh, faith, all is rooted in, in your great uh, sacrifice for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we want to get this picture clear today as we, as we look at this chapter. And, Lord, I just ask that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you open our ears and you open our eyes to see the things that are in heaven that John saw that very day that you brought him up there. So we just ask for a, a fresh vision, Lord, of, a, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that in his name. Amen. As we come to chapter 5, John is still in heaven. And he's in the various, very holiest, the very holiest of holies, the throne room of God. And so far, he's seen an open door into that throne room. And he's seen the creator on the throne. And he had the appearance as, as one with a, uh, that looked like a ruby red diamond. And we went into all of that symbolism before, and I'm not going to get into it today. But above his head was this emerald uh, green halo of, light which represented life and before the throne is this uh, sea of crystal glass and in the midst of the throne we saw these four living ones we saw this uh, lion and this ox and this man and this eagle and they all represent the attributes of God we saw that and then uh, we saw the 24 elders surrounding the throne and we saw the seven lamps which are the seven spirits of God that are now in heaven with the 24 elders. And we believe that the 24 elders represent the church. And so we have this picture of the Holy Spirit in heaven with the church. Now we're going to see the Holy Spirit on earth today, and we're going to have to clarify that as we see a different picture of the Holy Spirit. But, but that's what we've seen so far. And if you haven't been confused so far, well, get ready, there's some more confusing stuff coming today. In fact, it's even more of a difficult uh, passage to interpret than what we've looked at before. But, but, uh, and the reason that it's so difficult to interpret, what we're looking at here is uh, the symbols of a triune, infinite, eternal God embodied in Jesus Christ living in an infinite, eternal heaven. And these are things that we don't see every day. And these were things that John didn't see every day. And so he's trying to describe these things to us as, he, as best as he possibly could based upon what he was seeing in this vision. And, and so uh, uh, today uh, we're going to hopefully get some clarity about just who all of these characters are that we see here in John's vision of heaven, and as we see this triune, infinite, eternal God embodied in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of confusion today in Christendom about the Trinity. There are many evangelicals and many evangelical teachers who I believe see God as three separate individual persons, as uh, a God that has, or three gods 
with three distinct personalities, three distinct minds, and three distinct souls. Now, if that's the way you believe, that is not Trinitarianism. That is tritheism. What you believe, if you believe that way, you believe in three gods, and there are not three gods. It's what I call hyper-Trinitarianism. There is one God. That's why I think, you know, when Moses gave us the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, it's one of the most important passages we get in the entire scripture. And if you listen to, to what he says there, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, he is one. He is one God with one mind, one personality, and one soul. And that's who we see on the throne. And we see him in all of these different uh, manifestations. We see him as the man. We see him as the ox. We see him as the, the lion. We, we see him as, as uh, uh, in, in various different ways. But there are not three gods on three, three thrones. In fact, go back and look at ch- chapter 4 and look at verse number 2. And he's very clear there that when John walked into the throne room, look at what he saw. I was in the spirit, and behold, I mean, man, he was taken back. Can you imagine being taken up into the very throne room of God? And he says, behold, how many thrones? A throne. Now, there were the throne of the 24 elders. But as far as God's concerned, there was a throne set in heaven and one. How many, how many set there? Three or one? One set on the throne. But now, then we see all of these various uh, characteristics uh, of the attributes of God there on that in the midst of the throne too. We see the lion and we see the ox and we see the man and we see the eagle. Those things, those beings, those living ones, really it's not living creatures, that's a bad translation. Those living ones represent the very attributes of God. And so as we come to chapter number five, uh, John's going to get a little bit of a different version of God. And it gets really confusing because of this confusion over the Trinity. I remember one time being at a conference and a very prominent Baptist preacher uh, was exegeting this text. And he, the way he described this scene, he said that God the Father was on his throne and on, at, at his right hand, Jesus was sitting on his throne. And Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And God the Father was holding the scroll, and the scroll was the deed to the earth. And because Jesus had been slain, he was able to open that deed, or to get that deed back. And so he got up off his throne, went to the Father, and the Father handed him the scroll. Now in his mind, there, were, there are two gods embodied, and there is one God, the Holy Spirit. So God the Father is embodied in that picture, and Jesus Christ is embodied in that picture. And, and, and if, the, if you look at this text that we're looking today, at today, it almost looks like that's so. Because look at, look at verse number 1. Look at what he says in verse number 1. He says, I saw in the right hand of him, and he's speaking of the Father, who sat on the throne a scroll written and on the back of the scroll, and, and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then go to verse number 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand, Jesus came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the Father who sat on the throne. Now that almost looks like that description that that pastor gave of this scene is accurate based upon the context 
of this scripture, but it's not. Because there is one God. That does not fit with verse number 2 of chapter 4, where there's one God on one throne. That does not fit with the Shema, where there is, Hear, O Israel, your God, the Lord your God, he is one God. So how do we reconcile that confusion? And that's what we want to look at today as we come to chapter number 5, verse number 1. So, so pick up with me in chapter 5, verse number 1. And listen to what he says. I saw in the right hand of him, the Father, who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with, and on the back it was sealed with seven seals. Now, based upon the context of that verse, in context with verse number seven, it does look like God the Father hands the scroll to the Lamb. The Lamb takes the scroll from the Father's right hand. Now, that picture isn't unique. God having a right hand and Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. We see that throughout the New Testament. Let me read you a few examples here. It's Acts chapters 2, verse 33. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received, this is Peter speaking at his great sermon at Pentecost. He says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So you have this picture here of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Uh, again, Peter speaking. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Then you go over to Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is being stoned and listen to what it says about Stephen. It says, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So it almost does look from those passages like there is a God the Father on the throne and there is Jesus on his throne and then you have the seven lamps which represent the seven spirits of God. And so you have the Holy Spirit embodied in those lamps. And so if you take these scriptures literally and not without, without looking at the context of the rest of scripture, then you would conclude that there are two thrones and that there's two embodied gods, that the Father has a right hand and, and, and that's the way it looks in certain scriptures. But you've got to understand that this is figurative language. If the Father has a right hand, let me tell you something, it's an awful big hand. If he has a literal right hand, because it says he holds the whole universe in his hand. You know what else it says in Scripture? It says that he's written the name of all his saints on the palm of his hand. That's a big palm, or there's not many of us. I, I mean, I couldn't write all of you on this, my palm of my hand. So we, hopefully it's a big hand. Well, if we take Scripture literally in those cases, then God also has feet because we're told in Isaiah 66 that the Lord says, the earth is my footstool. We also have to believe that the Father has a nose, and it's an awful big nose. Not bigger than mine, but it's an awful big nose. Because in Exodus 15, we're told that by the blast of his nostrils, the waters of the Red Sea were piled up. And he's got to have wings, too, because in Psalms 36, we're encouraged to live under the shadow of his wings. Now, we know the Father doesn't have wings. We know that that's a bad hermeneutic because we know from John 
chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has seen the Father at any time. He's, you can't see him because John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that the Father is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. So what you have to conclude as you look at this, these, those types of descriptions of the Father, that what the author is using there, or what God is using there through the author, is figurative language. In other words, he's using terms that help us understand as humans just who he is. He, to help us understand the characteristics of an unseen God, a God that we don't see. And in Jewish literature, in Jewish, in Jewish tradition, the right hand is always symbolic of power and authority. And so when you see Jesus being described as sitting at the right hand of the Father, it's symbolic of the fact that all power on earth and on heaven has been given to him. And so you have to apply that same hermeneutic to the book of Revelation to get an accurate interpretation. You've got you to realize that this language here is figurative. And so when we see this reference of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, it's not a literal hand. There's not some God on one throne with a white, long white beard, as some people picture, and long white hair. Like I said last week, he kind of looks like Phil Robinson on steroids. But that's not what he looks like because no one's ever seen him. God is spirit. But his right hand does symbolize the fact that, all, that he has all power and authority, and he's given all that power and authority to Jesus Christ. Now the scroll. What's the scroll? If you've studied this stuff before, if you've ever looked at these types of passages about the scroll, I'm sure you've heard the same thing that that Baptist pastor said, that that scroll represents the title deed to the earth. And what happened was when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the title deed to this earth, and who did they lose it to? They lost it to Satan. Well, i got a big problem with that interpretation because the title deed to this earth was never Adam and Eve's to lose. God never gave them the title deed to this earth. He gave them dominion over the animals of this earth, but he never gave them the title deed to the earth. Let me prove that. Let me just read you a few scriptures here. Psalm chapter 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, it is all the Lord's. In Exodus 9 and Exodus 19, the Lord says the earth is the Lord, all the earth is mine. So Adam and Eve had dominion over the animal life, and, and dominion, they had the right to name the plants and do certain things. So they had dominion over this earth, and they did lose their dominion over this earth to Satan. That's why Satan's called the prince of this world. If Adam and Eve had fell, then Adam would have been called the prince of this world instead of that rascally rabbit he is. I mean, he, he caused us a lot of grief, but I, as I've said before, if you were in Adam's shoes, you would have done the same thing eventually. And so he fell, we all would have fell, and he lost his dominion over this earth. And, and so what's the right interpretation of this scroll? 
Well, I think we can figure it out pretty easy if we, if we look in the Bible. Where, where do we get our answers for these questions? We get our answers in the Bible. And I believe what this second, or, or what this scroll is, this, this, the right interpretation of what the scroll is, is that it represents the prophecy about the coming great tribulation. Okay, and that's the scroll that the Lord has in his hand. How many seals are on that scroll? Seven seals. Flip your Bible page over to, to chapter 6, and you should have headings there in your Bible. But notice what those headings are. What happens? The great tribulation begins, and those seals are open. How many seals are there? Look at chapter 6 and chapter 7. There are seven seals. So I have no doubt that this scroll that the Lord has in his hand I believe it's the prophecies that Daniel made about the great tribulation. Now, we don't have time to get in all that. If, like I've told you before, if you're going to do a good study of Revelation, you probably ought to do a good study of Daniel alongside that. We've done that here at the church recently on Wednesday night, and it's on tape. We don't charge you anything. I recommend that you read that, and some of this will make sense. But what I want to do today, I do want you to turn to the book of Daniel, and I want you to go to Daniel chapter 12. And this will, I think you'll understand what this scroll is when we, we look at this. Go to Daniel chapter number 12. And let's pick up in verse number 1. Daniel chapter 12. He says right away in verse number 1, he says, At that time, now what time is he talking about? He's talking about the end times on earth, the very end times where the great tribulation begins. At that time, Daniel shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Now, what's that time of Jacob's trouble? What do we call that? The great tribulation. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people, he's talking about the Jewish people, shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now watch this. Watch this very, very carefully in verse number 4. But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book because the time of the great tribulation is not now. This prophecy that I've given you is not going to take place now. So you seal the book until the time of the end. So where are we at in heaven? John is in heaven in eternity and he's in the future. And, it, and what time, what's the time at that particular time when he's in heaven? It's the time of the great, that the great tribulation is about to begin. So, so that makes sense that this book is going to be opened up. And, and a book, uh, Jews didn't have books. Ancient Jews didn't have books. What did they have? They had scrolls. And so it fits that word scroll that you have over in the New Testament, in the New King James Version. I think in the King James it's, it's book. But anyway, it's a scroll. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the full fulfillment of these wonders be? 
Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now he's going to tell him how long this period of time is going to last that's described in this book. He says a time, a year, times two years, and a half year. So three years, you total that up, that's three and a half years. That's the time, part of the great tribulation that something very dramatic is going to happen. Something very important in God's uh, agenda is going to happen. And he tells us what that is. He says the holy, he says, and when the power of the holy people, the Jews, has been completely shattered, all of these things shall be finished. Now, why does, why does God want the will of the Jews, the power of the Jews, to be totally shattered so that they will know Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth? You go over to Zechariah chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we're told that in those last days when Jesus returns, that the Jews will look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn as a mother mourns for her only son that she's lost. And, and before that happens, the Spirit of God has to be poured out on them so they can be saved, and before they're saved, their will has to be shattered. Before you and I could be saved, our will had to be shattered. And so their will has to be shattered too. And then the great tribulation will end. That's the purpose of the great tribulation. The purpose of the great tribulation, is the times of the Gentiles will be over when the great tribulation begins, and the time of the Jews will, will come that, that last week in Daniel's prophecy. And then that time will be uh, fulfilled when the Jews finally, finally their will is shattered. And then listen to what he says in verse number 8. Although I heard, I did not understand. Now, we don't understand all of this either. And Daniel certainly didn't understand it because he was living thousands of years, thousands of years before all of this was going to take place. He says, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he says, Daniel, you're not going to figure this out. He says in verse number nine, he says, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. So here is John out of time in heaven and he sees these lightnings and he hears these thunderings going forth from the throne and he knows that the great tribulation is about to begin. And that's something that every Christian, you know, it's sad to say, but we long for that time to come because when that time comes, it marks the beginning of the time when Jesus, just before Jesus Christ will come to rule on this earth. And so we long for that time. And I believe John longed for that time. And so he sees this scroll and, and uh, he gets this sense that it's about to be opened. And I think he knows what this scroll is all about. And so he wants to see the devil crushed. He wants to see evil ended on earth. He, and so he's excited. He's really excited. But there's a problem. There's a serious problem. And look at what, going back to Revelation. Go, let's go back to Revelation Chapter 5, it looked down at verse number 2. He says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And, and John's 
heart, all of a sudden, his heart is soaring because he thinks the time's about to, to, you know, things are about to happen and the Lord's about to return and he's all excited. And then all of a sudden they say, hey, nobody's, this scroll's not going to be open. Doesn't look like it's going to be open. And so John, you know, he's crushed. And he says, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And, and it looked as if Daniel's prophecy would never be fulfilled because no one was found worthy. I, I mean, what about the lion? What about the ox? What about the man? What about the eagle? He saw them in the midst of the throne. Were they not worthy to open the throne? They were in the midst of the throne, so who did they represent? They represented the attributes of God. But they represented the attributes of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence, his power. I mean, all the attributes necessary to, to judge this earth and, and to establish truth and righteousness on this earth, but not the, they don't represent the attributes of love and mercy and grace. Here they were, and they were missing, and no one was worthy to open the scroll. And without mercy and grace, there is no redemption of sin. And if God had initiated the great tribulation without the Lamb of God's work, then we all would have perished because the wages of sin is death and there is none righteous, no, not one. And when Christ comes back to this earth, everyone and everything's going to be righteous. Everyone's going to speak truth. And so, read verse number five. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Here's the good news. You want something to be thankful for this Thanksgiving? Here it is. Do not weep. Behold the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Who's the line of Judah? Who's the root of David? Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting because in Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, he's called the branch of David. We saw that when we were in Zechariah chapter 3 just a few weeks ago. He's the branch of David. And, and so he comes forth from David, uh, from the tribe of Judah. So that makes sense that he's the line from the, of the tribe of Judah. But he's the root of David. What's it mean that he's root, the root of David? We'll look back at verse number 11 of chapter 4. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor, for you created all things. Who created David? He created David, and he came forth from David. How amazing is that? It's absolutely amazing. And by your will, they exist and were created. So David was created by the will of God for him to come forth from David. So he's the branch of David. He's also the root of David. And how did he prevail? We know how he prevailed. How did he prevail? He prevailed by dying on a cross, by for. He paid for our sin, and what he did when he died on that cross, he regained man's dominion over this earth. That's exactly what Paul spoke of in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it. Jesus disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. And so... When he had that victory on the cross, the cross was a great victory. 
he regained or took back man's dominion over the earth. The first Adam lost it. The second Adam regained that dominion. And so that's why he now, hey, the devil is no longer the prince of this world. God has had victory over the devil. The devil has fallen. He's no longer the prince of the world. Let me tell you who has all power and authority on this earth. Jesus Christ has all power and authority on this earth. And then in verse number 6, he says, And I looked, and, and sure enough, John says, that's what he means by behold. I looked, and sure enough, behold, in the midst of the throne, of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, all of those great beings, living ones in that room, that eternal uh, heaven there, all of those, all of those living beings uh, could not do what the lamb had done. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And this was a weird looking lamb. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You know, this is where it's really nice to to, to look at a word and, and get the full meaning of that word, the word lamb there. It's not just lamb, it's a little lamb. It's a pet lamb. You know what I'm reminded of? And, I, and that's what the symbolism here is all about. I'm reminded of the little lambs that you remember when the Jews were about to make the exodus uh, across the Red Sea and they observed Passover and before they observed Passover, what they had to do, they had to bring a lamb into their home and they had to keep that lamb there four days. What do you think God's purpose was in keeping that lamb there four days? So they would get to love that lamb and to care for that lamb. And then they had to slaughter that lamb that they had, they had learned to love. I mean, this morning when I was getting ready for my sermon, my little, my little cat was laying in my lap. We call him Gus, because that's what he was named at the prison he was in when we got him out. But he was, he was laying in my lap, and he was all laid back like this. And I was looking at this very passage, and I thought, what if I had to take that little cat out? And in order to, to, to keep the death angel from destroying me, I had to kill, put a knife to his throat and kill that cat because of my sin. And that's the picture that's given here. I mean, here was Christ. He was on earth for three years. You want us to get a picture of a little lamb? A lamb that everybody wanted to follow because he was so good, he was so kind, he was so wonderful. Read the Gospels. And read about Jesus Christ. And his ministry for, was like for three years. Three years and we observed him and we, we, we saw him and we saw God embodied in him and we saw his love and we saw his mercy. We saw him as a little lamb. But then he had to be slaughtered for our sins. He had to die on that cross. He had to spill his blood for us. He became our Passover lamb so that when this great tribulation comes, that God would pass over us in this judgment. And the great tribulation becomes, comes on everybody at some point in their life because the wages of sin is death. It's death. One sin, the wages of one sin is death. And there is none righteous, no, not one in God's eyes. And we're made righteous by this Passover lamb. Thank goodness that in the throne room of God is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Thank goodness that before this great tribulation begins that there's mercy and there's grace and there's love. And that's the picture that we're being shown here. Hallelujah. 
Thank you, Lord. But this isn't just any lamb. He has seven horns. Now, if you're a, you're a Bible student, and you, especially if you're a prophecy student, you know exactly what those horns are. Those horns represent kings, crowns of kings. And he's the king of kings. The number seven is complete, perfect, divine perfection, divine completion. So he is the perfect king of kings. He has all authority over all kings. There's not any power under heaven, we're told in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that isn't given, that doesn't come from God. God has all power. He has all authority. And so he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he has seven eyes. He has seven eyes. He has the perfect, his perfect vision. Wish I had perfect vision. He has perfect vision. He sees everything. He sees the past. He sees the present. And he sees the future. Here's the good news. He sees everyone. And he knows those who are his. He knows those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life those names that are inscribed on the hand of the Father. He sees those. Do you know that when he hung on that cross, he saw your name? He saw my name? He knew everyone who he was dying for. He would have died, I've heard it said by many a preacher, and they're exactly right, he, if there would just been one of us that would have received him as our Savior, he would have died for us. He came specifically to die for you specifically to die for me. And from this throne, he rules by the seven spirits. Look at the last part of this verse. That it sent out into all the earth. Now wait a minute. This gets confusing. We have seven spirits, the seven lamps who are the seven spirits who are there with the church, the 24 elders. I believe at this point the church is in heaven. The rapture has taken place. John's, uh, as far as earth time goes, the rapture has already taken place. And the 24 elders represent the church that is in heaven. And you have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in heaven. When I think of the Holy Spirit, in most cases in Scripture, it's in reference to the church. Christ in us, our hope of glory. That's the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, as far as the church goes, if the church is in heaven, where's the Holy Spirit? He's in heaven. We're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, we're told that before the Antichrist can come on the scene, before this great tribulation begins, what has to happen? He who restrains the evil on this earth has to be removed. That's the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is removed. The, whole, the church is removed because the Holy Spirit's in the church, and God's not going to ever leave us or forsake us. So unless God's a liar, then we have to be in heaven too. So we've been raptured and we're in heaven. But wait a minute, here are seven spirits going out to all the earth. Somebody came up to me after we were talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 and raised a very good question, a very loving question. Uh, they raised the question almost with tears in their eyes. And their question, their question was, you know, I have friends and family that aren't saved. I, I have the thought of God removing himself from this earth is, is scary to me that, that they would never have a chance to get saved. Well, the church is removed from the earth. The Holy Spirit's removed from the earth. But God is imminent. 
in his creation. God never forsakes any part of his creation. The very attribute of God is that he is everywhere. He's not that in that chair, but he's by that chair. He's in this room right now. God the Father's in this room. He's everywhere. And that speaks of the spirit of the Father has gone out into the earth. And so in the great tribulation, the, the, the world's not going to be without the spirit of God. But now here's the problem. The spirit of God is orchestrating judgment on this earth. But you know, the spirit of God, the spirit of the Father is the same as the spirit of the Son. And that's mercy, grace, and love. And so there's going to be a great number of people that are going to be saved during the great tribulation. I believe much of the church is apostate today. But I believe a lot of them are going to get, you know, when things start crumbling all around them, they're going to get right with God. And they're going to, they're going to get saved. Because the Spirit of God will still be at work on this earth. He will never forsake this earth. God is imminent. He's transcendent. He's wholly other. But he is imminent. He is present forever in his creation. And he loves. God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. God doesn't quit loving the world when the great tribulation begins. Oh, on the contrary. He loves the world as much as he ever did. And he wants to see, he wishes that none should perish. That all should come to eternal life. He doesn't quit wishing that when the great tribulation comes. And that's why you have the great tribulation. Look, if God wanted to judge this earth, you read at what happens at the end of the millennium. God just wipes things out just like that. All the resistance against him, he wipes out just like that. If God wanted to, to wipe things out and judge the earth, he doesn't need seven years to do that. What are the seven years for? The seven years are to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah, and the seven years are to, to punish the wicked. And the seven years are to get wicked people saved. That's his motive. His motive is always love. God is love. All right, now, then verse 7, we finish it up for what, where we're going to go today. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It does look here like there's two embodied gods. It does look like the, the son, he, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the father. But remember, that's just symbolism there. The right hand means that he came and he took that scroll. And now all authority and power has been given to the, to the lamb. And now we're going to see the wrath of the lamb. This little lamb with seven eyes who died for our sins. Now this great tribulation, as we begin chapter 6, we'll, we'll finish up 5 next time. But as we get, begin chapter 6, we're going to see the wrath of the lamb. And, and all of these terrible judgments are going to come upon this earth. And so there aren't two embodied gods. There isn't a, there is, all of these things are pictures of God in Christ. Of, 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 as Paul says, as Paul says in Colossians, all the God, Jesus has, all the Godhead, all the fullness of the Godhead is in him bodily. All of it. What's the Godhead? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Godhead. And all of that dwells in Jesus bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. So what we're seeing here is figurative language. I mean, just as you see this lamb with seven eyes and seven spirits, uh, we know who that is. We know that's Jesus. 
We know that the, we, when we look at verse number 11, who's on the throne? If you look at verse number 11, for you created, here are the elders worshiping the one on the throne, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Who's the creator? Jesus is the creator. We know in Colossians 1.17, all things were created by him, for him, and through him. Nothing exists that he didn't make. He made all things. And then you go, then you have the, the, the living creatures. They're not worshiping him because they are him. They represent him, but they were saying this, holy, holy, holy. They say that forever. When you look at the attributes of God, they scream out even now, holy, holy, holy. I'm looking at verse number 8 of chapter 4. Is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is none other than Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 1, look at verse number 8, and when Jesus describes himself, he describes him as the, as the Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. I mean, how do you reconcile that then? I'll tell you how you reconcile it. It's very simple. Jesus put it like this. He said in, in uh, John chapter uh, 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 14, the first part of John chapter 14, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So when we look at all these attributes of the Father, we're also looking at the attributes of the Son. And when we're looking at the attributes of the Son, we're looking at the attributes of the Father. Jesus exegetes the Father. He brings forth the Father. So the lamb and the lion and the ox and the man and the eagle and the ancient of days who gives the land the scroll are all in the midst of the throne and they represent the triune God. The triune God who dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. As Paul says, he says, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And when John saw this scene, and he saw the lamb take the scroll. Can you, he's weeping because no one was there to take the scroll. And the lamb in heaven takes the scroll. You know, John didn't have a whole Bible to look at like we do. John didn't have all of these prophecies down like some of you do. Uh, but, I mean, he, here he is. I mean, he, he sees all this going on, and he's not sure exactly what's going to happen. But then he sees the lamb, and he knows who that lamb is. He knows that lamb is none other than Jesus Christ. And he knows that now, I mean, the, the seals can be opened. And I believe his heart jumped for joy. Because the events were about to begin that would usher in the reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. And John wasn't just rejoicing because the great tribulation was about to begin. I don't think he was rejoicing about that at all. Because later on, he eats of this book and it's both bitter and sweet. It's bitter because of all the tragedy that's going to take place on earth, but it's sweet because the Lord is coming back. And so he's, he's not rejoicing because the great tribulation's beginning. He's rejoicing because he saw the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the one who tips us, takes the blood, just like the, door was put on the, the blood was put on the doorpost, of the Jews, he takes that blood and he tips us with his blood, with his holy blood, so that when judgment does come, the Lord passes over us. 
Hey, you want something to rejoice about today? You want something to be thankful for this Thanksgiving? Not for the turkey slain before noon. <laughs> or even some really good dressing like my wife cooks. I can get that plug in. <laughs> be thankful for the lamb. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. I like the way Paul words it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, thank God for his indescribable gift. Indescribable. That's what God's trying to show us here in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. He's trying to show us how awesome and mighty and wonderful he is beyond our imagination. So magnificent and wonderful that he can't be described. And so he gives us this figurative language so that we can draw close to him and thank God for his indescribable gift. The lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. The king of kings and lord of lords who died on a cross for me and you. That's indescribable. What a God we serve. Amen? Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision that you've revealed to us through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And Lord, we are so blessed, so blessed to be part of your kingdom, so blessed to have received Christ into our hearts, so blessed to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, we have received such an indescribable gift Lord we, we don't even understand we, we can't even begin to understand all that your sacrifice on that cross means to us but Lord you've tried to show us today through these visions and, and we just ask that you you do Lord that you just make us more grateful you, you, you draw us closer to you closer to our Savior we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ it's in his precious name that I pray Amen.